nothing about us without us is for us. And when I think about my liberation work, I'm constantly considering how do we ensure those who are directly impacted by the injustice of whatever inequities that exist in this world are being centered and at the forefront of shaping what that movement and what can look like. Hello everyone, it's Biva and it's been a minute. We are back with our latest and final episode of season two, where we share a wonderful conversation MK had with a few of Free Minds Free People's awesome Asian American educators and organizers, Noreen Rodriguez, Sarah Ha, Tayo Ibato, and Ed Kormeng. Many know that the Asian American Pacific Islander community is a diverse and complex one, like all of our communities, and our interviewees delve into the nuances of the importance of disaggregating API data, ethnic studies, issues with anti-blackness, honorary whiteness, and what this means for AAPIs in the classroom. We also want to call attention to the ways that Asian American Pacific Islander groups have been lumped together over the history of the U.S. and how this takes away from identifying specific needs within the communities, especially amongst Pacifica people, some of whom have been calling for separation from the Asian American moniker, considering some of their more similar history and culture with indigenous groups. So while we continue to include Pacific Islanders in this conversation, we do so with the awareness of the ways Pacific Islanders have been marginalized within the AAPI community and the need to center their stories and experiences separate from other Asian American groups. We do hope you enjoy this last episode of the season just in time for Lunar New Year, and we can't wait to share all the new things coming your way in season three. My name is Tayo, um, from New York City. I am a uh, educator, an artist, uh, basketball coach, husband, um, sister, brother, son. Um, my people is everybody here. Is uh, all my relations, this earth, anyone who's who's down with uh, the earth. Hi, I'm Ed Kuramang. I am a son, a partner, a friend. In my, in my day-to-day, I'm also a professor at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills. Um, I teach in the College of Education. I help prepare teachers. And so those are my peoples. I have a lot of homies that are there, wonderful students. Uh, I'm also part of the people's education movement, so that's, that's who I rolled with here. Um, I'm also part of uh, Penai Penai Educational Partnerships. That's where we linked back up, Pen. so shout out to them. And I'm a part of this, you know, like we connect with when you see one another in spaces like this, I feel like there's that inherent, like, I see you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sarah Ha. My family would pronounce my name as Sarah Ha. <laughs> I am the proud, proud daughter of Inoha and Myonghi Ha, um, immigrants from Busan, South Korea. I am a wife, a life partner, a sister, um, an educator activist, um, 
someone who is grounded in the fight for equity and racial justice and community. Um, my peoples are all living spirits and things, those who have come before us and those who have yet to be born. And I am particularly um, someone who is thinking about those who have invisible identities. And I feel compelled to ensure that those voices and perspectives have access to the platforms and spaces to elevate their voices um, and ensure that we no longer render the invisible visible and make sure that we are proud of who we come from, where we come from, and who we are. I'm Noreen Nassim Rodriguez. I am a mother scholar, and my daughter is here. I don't know if she's going to want to talk just yet, or if we'll wait for her. Um, I uh, am an elementary educator at heart always. Um, I was trained as a bilingual educator, and so um, I have always wanted to center students of color, particularly immigrant youth, children of immigrants um, like myself. And my job is as an assistant professor of social studies education at Iowa State University, where I work really hard to help our future elementary teachers figure out how to share stories of students who are not like them, stories that represent the students that they teach, and also the students who are part of the white majority in Iowa, um, and help them understand the diversity that is in this world. And it's, it's a challenge because I'm not of Iowa. I, I, I work in Iowa, I live in Iowa, but I'm from Texas. You know, Texas is a place where a Pakistani immigrant, a Muslim Pakistani immigrant and a Filipina Catholic nurse met and, and I'm a product of that relationship. And I, I wanna make sure that those roots of being interracially mixed and having that, that really rich Pakapina identity um, resonate with the people that I meet in the Midwest where I, I work now. God, what is liberation work? For me, it's it's collective. It's never alone. Um, it's it's being open to and um, yearning for like being held accountable um, when in in spite of shortcomings, in spite of growth. It's it's always gonna be collective, and I think it's iterative in the sense that you know we're we're working towards something, and as a collective, we can we can get there more whole, I guess. As I'm reflecting on my response to your question, I draw inspiration from South African disability activists who used to say, nothing about us without us is for us. And when I think about my liberation work, I'm constantly considering how do we ensure those who are directly impacted by the injustice of whatever inequities that exist in this world are being centered and at the forefront of shaping what that movement and work can look like. My liberation work also includes ensuring that all like children in this world, as well as the community members who usher in and foster the, the world that we live in, are being fully seen, heard, and celebrated for their hum full humanity. I, I think about that drawing upon my own personal experiences where I felt as though I didn't necessarily have that agency. Being a child of immigrants who made a very difficult decision to bring my younger sister and me to Busan, South Korea when we were six or five because they didn't have access to the networks or resources to care for us and my sister and I were 
forcibly separated from our parents. We developed and had post-traumatic stress disorder as children being separated from our parents at such a developmental age um, and are considered satellite children now. Thank you. Um, and when we were reunited with my parents and returned to the U.S., I remember re-entering the school that I had originally attended in Worcester, Massachusetts, which was a predominantly black and Puerto Rican school. There was a growing Vietnamese population, and no educator thought to ask, like, who are you? Where are you from? What language do you speak? And folks just assumed, despite the fact that I was Korean and I lost fluency in English, that I was Vietnamese because I did have a Vietnamese um, last name, but Ha is also a Korean last name, and there's only one line of Ha's in the history of the Korean diaspora. Um, and remember just going to school and bringing back translated material for my parents that was in Vietnamese, and not necessarily being able to figure out how do I ensure that I can help support my parents navigate the school system that wasn't adequately serving me. And drawing upon that experience, that's why I feel compelled to be an advocate, particularly for our Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community to ensure that the complexities and diversity of the needs and richness of our community is no longer rendered invisible or at the forefront of conversations around educational equity. And I know I've had an, a unique and humble pleasure of working with Ed and we were connected and Tayo and I ended up becoming partnered um, because of similar conversations about the unique system of oppression that our people experience that is grounded in invisibility, silence, and erasure. Sarah, I love what you have to say, and I think so much of what I've become increasingly interested in is thinking about the margins of the margins. If we are starting to center the stories of children of color, like are there children of color whose stories still remain sidelined or ignored, and how can we, we center that? So I think for me, like that's that's my liberation work, and it's it's a long game, obviously, but um, you know, in, in the elementary ed world, there's a lot of talk about um, you know, just more diverse stories, but that, that, no. And a lot of times, you know, there's these ideas of bringing in more diverse books, but those diverse, diverse books don't do anything if they're sitting on a shelf or if a teacher reads them once mm -hmm. and then never again do those students ever hear about someone who's Vietnamese or Vietnamese and Chinese mm -hmm. or someone who is, you know, just not what you would expect of a particular culture, religion, or group, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think um, that's my book. For my liberation work, it's definitely, you know, the the work that that people may see me for, you know, whether it's um, being a high school teacher or a professor of uh, pre-service or in-service teachers or um, my cultural work as uh, through music and writing. But I think for me, I always think about my liberation work and how it begins with myself and um, undoing the social conditioning, undoing um, the patriarchy, undoing the, the, the cisgender constructions, undoing um, the classism and the capitalism, and um, um, always trying to educate myself more about my blind spots, you know. Um, 
a lot that's been on my mind lately is just as a growing up as a, as a cisgender straight male, just just like educating myself more about about just um, the LGBTQ community and um, how much heteronormativity and and patriarchy and these gender constructions uh, really um, you know damage our relationships. And so you know all these all working on myself first is is so pivotal because it's it allows me to have more authentic relationships with my students, uh, my peers, uh, and everybody else in my community. I think for, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna speak from my experience as a, as a New York City educator and um, seeing what I've seen. And uh, I think for me, one, I just wanna make clear, like give a little background that um, where I predominantly teach and work is uh, uh, a transfer, alternative transfer high school in New York City. So um, in, our, in our network of schools, we see how much, uh, you know, what Dave Stavall was saying today about just how much the school system is a school uh, prison nexus and how much um, um, certain groups of students and young people are always excluded, always pushed out. Um, and, you know, in our, in our transfer schools, we see the same kinds of things. We see, um, you know, majority black and brown students. We see immigrant students. We see students with disabilities. We see LGBTQ students who don't feel safe, who are, who are neglected um, in these other schools, in most of these schools, and are pushed to us. You know what I mean? And um, sometimes Asian youth are, are, are fit in that, and sometimes they don't. And, you know, a lot of the conversation around, like, um, affirmative action and data segregation and uh, uh, of the resegregation of schools, you know, I've, I see on a daily basis in New York City. And, um, you know, definitely, like, a, a huge trend is just how much um, Asian American students in New York City have uh, taken over and populated um, you know, privileged white magnet schools and specialized schools. And so I think one important work is just challenging the whiteness in our communities, challenging the whiteness, the white mentality in our communities, and um, to not just be content like, you know, they get into the special, specialized schools or the magnet schools, be like, oh, okay. First of all, those specialized magnet schools have a extremely white supremacy, Eurocentric, you know, education system. So even if they're going through that, yeah, they might be able to have a more clear passageway to the, to the middle class, but the kinds of mentalities and mindsets that these are framing are just just being like a regurgitation of of you know the, the same kind of Eurocentric oppressors, and so I think it, it that's huge is, is challenging the whiteness in our community um, in so many ways and just supporting things like data segregation because you know it's predominantly uh, Chinese and immigrant uh, Chinese uh, and Indian you know students who who are from more privileged backgrounds who are getting to these schools, so that's that. But at the same time. When we're used as, um, you know, honorary white status, that 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 takes a huge load on our mental health, and, and um, we know, you know, I think all of us know here how how much we have unique mental health challenges, and um, and, and needs. You know what I mean? Like being being socially conditioned, racialized as the model minority group, that 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 creates this experience of of. Um, of high suicide rates, you know, for for many of our young women, of uh, of uh, um, conditions where you know we're a group that just that doesn't have the mental health resources, and nor do we feel safe enough and brave enough to to uh, access those mental health resources, and um, I, I, that's the other uh, key challenge I see. I know I shared this a little bit earlier, which was around like the unique experiences or unique system of oppression that I find Asian American Native Hawaiian 
and Pacific Islander communities facing that's grounded in erasure, visibility, and silence. And if I were to unpack that, just following and expanding upon what Taya was referencing and touched on some, like a, a few of the unique needs and challenges um, with regards to like affirmative action, data disaggregation. I think one other piece to this, um, as we're um, thinking about challenging whiteness in our own communities is the importance of ethnic studies. And I, I believe Ed might have some uh, unique perspective to add there. But it, um, you know, our community is extremely diverse. We represent over 48 different ethnic groups, over 300 spoken languages, varied immigration histories, language background, as I just referenced, uh, socioeconomic status, religion, uh, cultural identities. And I don't think that there has been a public, um, a public sense of awareness of how complex and diverse our community is. And even members of our own community may not be exposed to that because we do not see stories or narratives of our community that have been elevated and celebrated in our schooling. I can't recall like ever learning about my culture or my heritage aside from just one paragraph around the Korean War until I got to college and became more politicized having one, just one ethnic studies class on my campus at Boston College. Um, and I remember just sitting there in my classroom thinking, oh my gosh, why did I choose to go to BC? Mm -hmm. Though I, I, I love BC, I am a proud <laughs> <laughs> eagle for any Boston College alums out there. <laughs> However, um, I remember just learning about um, uh, the ethnic studies um, movement that was just happening on the West Coast, and I thought, why didn't I choose to go there? Um, or like, would my education have been different like if my parents had decided to immigrate to like California, for instance? And it was a disservice, as I thought about it, to me and to many other children um, not having access to those narratives. Because now I'm seeing that as somebody who is an educator activist, who is a convener and a connector, where my role is to convene our network of pre-K through 12 um, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander educators across the nation. I have a unique role leading the National Asian American and Pacific Islander Alliances at Teach for America, which was born out of self-determination. It was born out of over 100 Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander staff members at Teach for America coming together to petition for TFA to say, our communities matter, our voices, our identities, and our work matter. We want to be seen, to be heard, and to be celebrated for the contributions that we might make in the education equity space. And um, having been somebody who didn't go through Teach for America's core and was on the other end of a partnership conversation, um, prior to joining Teach for America, I used to work with the Gates Millennium Scholars Program at one of the partner organizations called the Asian Pacific Islander American Scholarship Fund, which is now rebranded and called APIA Scholars. But when I was at APISF, I learned about the history of why that organization existed. And learning about that legacy, knowing that when the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was first founded, went to the United Negro College Fund with a $1 billion grant 
to help launch the Gates Millennium Scholars Program, our community, the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community, was not included or considered at the inception of the Gates Millennium Scholars Program. And that actually came out because folks were learning and drawing decisions based off of reports that were produced um, to have an understanding about the educational attainment rates across different racial groups in this country. And the College Board at that time had produced a report around educational attainment rates across racial communities and they aggregated the data for the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. And we know that data disaggregation is a civil rights issue for the community. It ha data has a power to conceal or reveal the inequities that exist. And when you disaggregate the data, you recognize that some of the highest poverty rates are among some of our ethnic groups within the Southeast Asian and Pacific Islander community. When we look at high school dropout rates, currently 50% of Bhutanese students are dropping out of high school. 35 to 45% of Southeast Asian American students are dropping out of high school. When we even consider the school to prison to deportation pipeline, like our community is not included in those conversations because data disaggregation is another avenue that inhibits our community to have agency to be able to advocate for the issues and draw attention to those issues. Um, so I, I would say data disaggregation is certainly one issue and challenge. Another is the model minority myth. I hate, hate talking about the model minority myth. Because how many years has it been that we've had the model minority myth? I would love to move beyond the model minority myth, but it is still pervasive that um, where folks have, and, and institutions have in, inter, internalized the model minority myth. And I think, you know, what we, the lesson learned from Teach for America, or even with the inception of the Gates Millennium Scholars Program, is not a, a knock on any of those institutions, but it is a demonstration of how it is a microcosm of how the model minority myth has been internalized that inhibits institutions to understand the blind spots that exist to ensure that our communities are made relevant and we are unearthing the inequities that exist. Um, and as such, like I am really proud to be a part of a network um, that is grounded in building grassroots, grass tops relationships with external organizations, legacy organizations within the AANHPI community because these communities have existed even long before Teach for America came into place, as well as scholars to ensure that we work together um, to strengthen our support for our students, our educators, and communities broadly. And then lastly, one other issue in education is around teacher diversity. When we look at our national teaching workforce data, um, obviously we see that 80% of our teachers are, are white, which is not proportional to the changing demographic of our student population. When we break it down to the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community, 6% of our national K-12 students in our public schools are ANHPI and our teacher data is not uh, proportional. It hasn't um, been up to pace. Less than 2.5% of our teachers identify as Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander. And I think that we have a lot more work to do because even with our uh, ed programs, what I hear from other scholars and educator activists is we don't also consider prioritizing 
you know, diversifying that pipeline and including our community in those efforts. So in addition to what's already been mentioned, um, I, I think there's an ongoing need to make sure that Asian Americans and Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders are represented in the curriculum, represented well, um, beyond these ideas of holidays, food festivals, and fun. Um, you know, and, and particularly with my focus on elementary, teachers are increasingly including things like Diwali or Chinese New Year, or Lunar New Year, um, but it's often not done in ways that are substantive. It's often done in ways that focus on Asian-ness and not American-ness that focuses on exoticism and foreignness um, that continue to separate the Asian from the Asian American. Um, and so I think making sure that we are not just trying to get stuff included, but included with nuance and with a lot of education of the educators. Um, because, you know, as, as Sarah mentioned, so very few um, public school teachers are Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, right? Um, and I think Ed can definitely speak to the broad range of things that Asian American teachers in particular can bring to classrooms. Um, uh, I'm someone who has kind of looked at ethnic studies in awe and with lots of wishfulness because it's not something that I experienced myself in school. Um, and a lot of the stories I share professionally, I tell people how, you know, I was a bilingual educator, so I, I focused on Latinx histories, um, thinking very deeply about how to make what I taught culturally relevant and sustaining for my Latinx students. But for some reason, I never thought about how I wasn't ever trained in a way that related to my own Asian Americanness. And it wasn't until I was in my doc program, right? Like, and I, I, I taught for a long time, so I did my doc program in my mid-30s, that I first learned that the first Filipinos landed in California in 1587. I was 30-something years old, right? And so that's too long. Hmm. Um, and so then thinking about how, how much learning I've had to do, but with access, right? Like I can access academic materials that will tell me about the sick Mexican families that were created in California, about the, the Filipinos who um, created families with uh, African-Americans in Louisiana, like all of these, these fascinating histories that would have spoken to me so much more than what I actually learned in school. And I share stories about how in 10th grade, my American history teacher asked me where my people were from. And then after asking that to only me, she asked my Vietnamese American friend if her family ate dog. And so I'm just like, these, the pervasiveness of the ignorance, particularly among educators when it comes to our communities, is painful. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want our histories taught in school, but I need them done right. Yeah. 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 What's up, y'all? My name is Farima Porkhorshid, and I'm hella proud to be a board member for the Education for Liberation Network. I think one of the things I feel most inspired by is just the countless ways that those in the National EdLib Network and family continue to resist by reimagining, building, and really sustaining spaces for the teaching and learning of freedom. It's through our local community work as well as our collective national work that we remain committed to our shared imagination for a more loving and humanizing world and for education as a site of revolutionary possibility. 
But for us to do that work, we do need people to help sustain us financially. Please consider donating to our independent organization. We are not owned by a foundation, a corporation, or any institution. And it's this very independence that allows our work to be driven by the priorities of grassroots educators, activists, and youth. And we're able to actively create space for local work to have a national impact. You can become a monthly sustainer or you could just make a one-time donation at www.edliberation.org. We cannot do this work or even this podcast without your support. And we just thank you in advance for any donation that you're able to give. We appreciate y'all so much. I mean, everything that folks are saying is is like hitting it, right? And I think a couple of things that come to mind, like in addition to like the overwhelmingness and this desire for or proximity towards whiteness, I think within our within the Asian American community in particular, there's inherent anti-blackness, right? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that that teachers, students need to have the tools necessary mm-hmm. to really unpack that and how we are complicit in upholding anti-blackness, right? And and I think this this turn towards Asian American studies for me was by happenstance. Like I went to SF State, didn't, it was, it was because it was just close to home. I had no idea what ethnic studies was. It was just there, right? It wasn't just there, but I was, I was literally, there's a story I say about like, I was like literally standing underneath this beautiful mural, um, not knowing the history until I took a class because I had never seen Filipino in the course catalog, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And then from there, life turned turned right as we know with ethnic studies at at state and that's that's a privilege and access that you know as a transfer student myself had it not been for that it would have been a different i think i would not be here in this space right Mm -hmm. so i appreciate that um and i think one of the things that i think is necessary too is if you don't serve asian american students right uh if you don't have Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander students in your classroom, for example, doesn't mean you need to not learn about ways in which contributions, histories, right? Because I think that there's this fear that like, well, I don't have, you know, an Asian child in my classroom or whatever it is, so I don't need to read the immense, amazing scholarship, literature, texts that's being produced, art, right? Um, Because the I don't have them, right? And there's this kind of, we kind of reinforce like racialization. So I think in so doing, I think we can really think about how, how our lives have been shaped by different forces. So in particular, like my family, my dad's side left Ilocos Norte because the Hawaiian Sugar Plantation Association recruited Ilocanos to work mm-hmm. in the sugarcane fields, right? So growing up, my proximity and understanding around culture was heavily influenced by being Filipino in Hawaii, specific, specifically in Kauai. So then that caused a lot of weirdness in my own identity as, as, a, as someone that's been trained in um, like Hawaiian dance, hula and Tahitian in particular, um, since I was nine, right? So there's this weird kind of complexity um, around identity, but then what's helped me unpack that and kind of come to terms with that are the skills, concepts, and structures that an ethnic studies lens provides? Like, for example, like what does it mean to be a settler in Hawaii? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we? Yeah. How do we think about empire and yeah. and imperialism? And then also the idea that 
Asian American studies or majoring in ethnic studies um, won't get you a job, right? So then becomes also within our community this notion that go to college, become X, Y, or Z, but make sure that that X, Y, or Z then it results in a high paying job. And we can understand why families might want to pursue that, but it's also trying to really um, embrace that tension of like education toward what end, right? Mm -hmm. It should be for this. And I can say that in a very like privileged space to be able to, you know, have, I have higher education. Um, but I think the last thing I want to point out too is that there's also really rich utility in sharing in my work with, with teachers, pre-service and in-service teachers, um, they, they read a lot of Asian American studies, right? I have, I think I can count on, on one hand how many, I've only been in faculty for two years, but I can count on one hand the number of Asian American teachers that I've been able to work with, but to be able to have other folks, uh, elementary school teachers, chemistry teachers, take ethnic studies and critical education scholarship and then make this amazing stuff, it's like mind-blowing, right? That's, there's, that's the hope. It's like, okay, this works, because that's what I know, right? Like, ethnic studies made me a teacher. So, like, how do we prepare teachers to do that, too? Yeah. And, not, and, not, and also not reinforce the, like, okay, well, I don't have any uh, Asian kids, so I don't need to read whatever. And it's funny, my mom was looking for, like, I was looking over, like, my, my child uh, folder, and I, I, there was a letter to Yoshiko Chida um, that we, I, in first grade, my, my, my first grade teacher, my third grade teacher wrote me a letter because we wrote, we read her book, right? Read the book. And then I think in the letter it also said, I think this was her, she just passed, Yoshiko Chida just passed. This might've been the last letter that she wrote because we wrote to her. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I, I, I didn't, that didn't click to me like having access to, to that literature, but then also giving the skills to, to teachers to support what that means beyond the representation. Like, okay, well, here's the one, you know, Asian American text, How, what do you do with it, you know? Yeah. When, and I argue, now that I'm in Iowa, all the time, that when you're in a school with only white kids, they need to know this more than schools mm -hmm. where there are actual Asian American and Native yeah. Hawaiian Pacific Islander kids present to, to supplement, right? Yeah. right? That's where the education has to happen because if not, then they're gonna walk around in the world later on having no understanding of people mm -hmm. that are different from themselves. Right, right. Exactly. I think another important thing is to also view ethnic studies as not like a stagnant thing, but an ever evolving thing, you know what I mean? Because we need to also challenge the, the dominant narratives in that ethnic studies. Because most of the Asian students I've taught in New York City, they weren't Chinese, Filipino, or Japanese American, or Korean American, or Vietnamese American. You know, they've been Tibetan, mm -hmm. Nepalese, you know, Bangladeshi, and and their stories, you know, aren't always really reflected in the ethnic yeah. studies yeah. narrative. Absolutely. So it's like, what is it to craft um, the work of being an educator that that is more inviting and that allows for um, um, just narratives to be heard, period. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Not just like, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. But then it's also like having, it's, I think for, the, for everyone in this room, it's like the, we fell in love with school because it, something was resonating, right? Yeah, so whether sure. what that is, yep. that was the way in which we were able to work towards liberation, right? Like, and think about how, how finally, you know, there's something about education that's mirroring my experience. What do we want people to know about APIA community and education? Earlier, we talked a lot about the needs and our challenges. Mm -hmm. And it's, it feels like those needs and challenges that we were responding to was how we like got a chance to build a community. Mm -hmm. When you were sharing about 
the TFA experience and how over 100 API folks who participated in this TFA experience and was like, hey, wait a minute. And that folks got a chance to talk to one another and folks got a chance to, to figure out how you know, to grow more spaces for belonging for API community folks to see themselves as teachers and teachers in the world. So we talked a lot about, well, just increasing Asian Americans in the workforce and the teacher workforce, mm -hmm. um, disrupting model minority myths, this need for data disaggregation, this need to disrupt systematic erasure, exoticization, and anti-blackness, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And just like this need to increase access to mm -hmm. our own histories, mm -hmm. right? and our own stories mm -hmm. um, inside educational institutions. And from those needs and challenges, we like legit created some beautiful communities, of people working toward opening up a lot more space, yeah. right? For us to feel like, feel belonging, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, one example is just the, the ethnic studies fight in SFUSD. Mm -hmm. Like we talked a lot about what's been happening, what is happening to us. And I'm really interested in hearing about well, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. You know, what are we doing together? Mm -hmm. And what are all the different communities or, and networks, you know what I mean, that we're a part of, connected to, um, put, put energy and resources around, right? Mm -hmm. To, yeah, to grow more spaces, more liberatory spaces, right? Where people like us can belong. Mm -hmm. Something that popped into mind was how everyone in this room had concentric circles of work, right? Like. I've known, I feel, I was like, we know, and then that's so funny that, like, that was the thing, right? Like, oh, because we were at SFUSD in, in 2010, and then there's so many different pockets, like, when, when I was doing work with CARE, and then you were at APSF, um, and then also, like, Noreen and I have kind of began our professional careers as, as professors together at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. um, that there's, there's so much overlap with folks doing the work, and I also think it's necessary to, like, punctuate um, that we are a part of or extension of a long history of folks that have been doing organizing, activism, right? Um, not just US-based too, right? I think it's like we, we have to, we come from a legacy of resistance and struggle and, and survival and organizing um, in different ways, in different like formations that weren't always just Asian American, right? I think mm -hmm. that kind of gets missed and I think um, we want to keep on doing that, right? Edlib is the wonderful umbrella that keeps us connected. Um, so I think it's also being able to seek out, seek out, right? Like, what what what's the context of those that you're serving, and how do we also kind of provide that support and learn from those different histories? What brought us here? What makes us connected? And I think it's even if it's encouragement from afar, right? That I think that that happens um, to still to still amplify this history that's been going on that we're so fortunate to be continuing. I think the Free Minds, Free People network and community and family is so beautiful. And it's why I love coming here. And everybody connected with it is really, like I said, is doing the work. Um, and when you were asking uh, what I want people to know about our community, I think um, I think about what what uh, Stephanie Autumn was saying today uh, at the opening plenary that our children are sacred um, and that our children are also dying and being deported. You know, they're dying by suicide. They're dying by all sorts of uh, racial violence and poverty. Um, and, and they're hurting. Um, 
but they're also resilient. They're also incredible. Um, all of those things, um, but that they're sacred, first and foremost. I think Ed was speaking a little bit to this, and I appreciated you just lifting up the history of resilience, of, of survival, and even thriving that had continued to exist for our community. And this, it was just making me think about how I always continue to pay tribute to um, the Black Liberation Movement, where we drew our inspiration, where the Asian American movement drew its inspiration, where we continue to like draw that. Um, and I think one other thing that I, I always feel compelled to just continue to elevate is in that interconnectedness is drawing upon how like all other communities, we lead and live intersectional identities. And I wanted an opportunity to lift up um, the National Council on Asian Pacific Americans, uh, which is a coalition of 34 other um, APIA organizations across the country. And um, given that I do work that is always influenced by and inspired by leaders that have taken a, uh, have, who have played a significant role in uh, investing in me and um, investing in my growth and development. I just wanted to bring those people and those organizations into this space, particularly, you know, the Asian Pacific Islander American Scholarship Fund, the now called APIA Scholars, the Southeast Asian Resource Action Center, Empowering Pacific Islander Communities, OCA, <laughs> API advocates, um, and many, many other organizations. So if folks are just listening in on this, like I encourage you to look up some of these organizations that have been doing this work for many, many, many years. And I also wanted to lift up um, something that I um, picked up from their uh, policy platform that came out in 2016 because I think they poignantly um, put together um, a, a quote um, or a narrative describing what I think is good about knowing about the API community. And it goes, Asian American, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing racial group in a nation at 21.8 million Americans, and by 2040, nearly one in 10 Americans will be ANHPI. We live intersectional identities. Being ANHPI is an important aspect of who we are, but not the only one, and therefore our community values and reflects the diversity as a core strength of the United States of America. We represent over 50 ethnicities and speak more than 100 languages. We are women and men, transgender, cis cisgender, and gender nonconforming. We are straight, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer. Our immigrant experiences range from families who arrived centuries ago to first-generation immigrants and refugees, documented and undocumented, and of course, Native Hawaiians who did not immigrate at all. We are Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, and we may be multiracial too. The median age of ANHPIs is years younger than the American population as a whole, yet the fastest growing segment of our community is our older adults. 
We are people with and without disabilities. We belong to religions ranging from Christianity and Islam to Sikhism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, or no religion at all. Although we represent great diversity, Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders have found commonality and community in our ANHPI identity, embodying the ideal out of many, one. In that same spirit, we are in solidarity with other fellow communities of color, indigenous communities, refusing to be used as a wedge and rejecting the model minority myth. We oppose anti-Muslim hate and bigotry. We stand against xenophobia. We believe black lives matter. Yeah, good way to end. We look forward to connecting again in two years at the next few months. Absolutely. Thank you. Peace. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to Free Minds, Free People podcast. Be sure to check us out next month. Please follow us on social media at Free Minds, Free People. Hi, folks. This is Brian from the podcast team. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode. Please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. That would help us an awful lot. Stay free. The FMFP Podcast is brought to you by our organizer team from across Turtle Island. Viva Fulon, Farima Porcorshiz, Brian Ford, MK Wynn, Kendra Pelo Joaquin, Sofia Ek, J.R. Arimbuanga, Renee Lee, and Mariana Ramirez. The music for the podcast was created by Broke Free.